0: Welcome to Chatter. I'm David Priest. This week, psychiatrist Nasir Gami on manic depression and crisis leadership.
1: One of the interesting things about First-Rate Madness was that the chapters on the more recent leaders always got resistance from whatever ethnic group or country the leader was from. So the British didn't like the Churchill chapter and the Germans didn't like the Hitler chapter and the Indians didn't like the Gandhi chapter. People say you can't know because they're dead. Actually, the truth is the more dead they are, the more you know. Uh, We don't know the truth about Bill Clinton and Donald Trump, but we do know the truth about John Kennedy and Winston Churchill. It's factually wrong that mental illnesses are harmful or bad. Actually, they're beneficial in some ways, and that's often hard for professionals to accept.
0: Sir, welcome to Chatter. Thanks. Nice to be with you. You work at a, a fascinating intersection. Um, your expertise that we'll get into deals uh, in psychiatry, particularly with mental illness. And I still don't understand what what the right term is now. Is it manic depression, or is it bipolar, or is it a combination of those, depending on the circumstance?
1: Right. Well, according to the mainstream of the profession, it's bipolar disorder. Um, mm-hmm. But the older term was manic depressive illness, which I actually prefer.
0: Okay. Uh, And that's what I'm most familiar with um, as well. So uh, I hope I don't offend anybody by using one or the other. Um, But you've given me license to do so, and no one is better prepared to do that. But the the intersection that fascinated me was a few years ago, I came across a book you'd written called A First-Rate Madness, in which you looked at the links between mental illness and leadership, especially crisis leadership.
1: Mm -hmm. And
0: and that intersection of looking at mental illness and history, uh, especially crisis leadership is rare, Uh, but it does raise a few possible issues for just even looking at this topic that I'd like you to address. First, some people, particularly in the humanities, will doubt that there is such a thing as mental illness, uh, particularly in a way that can affect um, historical leadership type issues. Um, please debunk that for us. Why is that, why is that wrong? Uh, well, there's a, a
1: couple ways to, 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 to get at that, but maybe it's the simplest way would be to say, I think most people would agree that mental illnesses happen in the general population, that there are people who have things like schizophrenia and depression mm-hmm. and bipolar illness. Uh, and why would uh, a public leaders for some reason be immune to that? they could have any physical illness that the general population could have, they could have sure. any psychiatric illness as well. So I think just sure. as a kind of okay. logical point, uh, there's no reason why they couldn't.
0: Mm-hmm. There's a related objection that any attempt to reconstruct mental illness um, before our own era involves backward projection, that we're, we're transporting into the past our own concepts and ideas. Um, why is that okay?
1: Well, that's a, a bigger debate in the world of um, history of medicine and, and social sciences. Um, there definitely is a contemporary mainstream uh, conventional wisdom that you cannot and should not do that. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, oftentimes the conventional wisdom is false. Um, and... It kind of gets back to the first claim. If, you ha- if there are such things as mental illnesses, they're uh, created by God and nature, and they've always been the same. Mm-hmm. We may be interpreting them differently socially, but that doesn't mean they, they didn't exist before. So if we are correct with some of our current perspectives on some of these illnesses, then it's not wrong to apply it 100 years ago or 200 years ago, because it will, it will have been there at that time. Mm-hmm. if we are wrong about our current views, then, then that is a criticism. But um, I think terms like managed expressive illness actually have been very well established for over 100 years. So applying them within the past 100 years is actually within the correct time frame in which they've been used.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I think a, a parallel here that that I've thought about is fibromyalgia, which mm-hmm. is only in my lifetime that it's been an actual term and become a diagnosis, even though chronic widespread pain has been documented in the past. Uh, Backward projecting fibromyalgia, as we'll talk about in many mental health issues as well, it it depends on documentation, it depends on vivid descriptions of exactly what the patient was was suffering. Um, But I understand that there are some people who would object to saying, well, Julius Caesar clearly had fibromyalgia, simply because there are many people who went to school when that term was not even widely used. Yeah, that's a
1: very good point, because terms like that are extremely new. But uh, you will find uh, mania in ancient Greek uh, medical writings. The right. term exactly used uh, was used then. You will also mm-hmm. find melancholia, which is the older term used right. for depression. Uh, right. They weren't used exactly as uh, contemporary psychiatry uses some of those terms. But actually, I would argue that it's more likely that the ancient Greeks were right and contemporary psychiatry is wrong for that matter. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's a good cell phone in some ways, but I'm glad, <laughs> glad you're on top of it. I found in some historical readings of uh, what I will still call the modern era compared to ancient Greece, but clearly before modern medicine truly developed, that melancholia and melancholy, I mean, you read about Lincoln and the descriptions of his depression are much more often using one of those words, melancholia or melancholy, than mm. what we would use as a modern uh, phrase like depression. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I think uh, God and nature creates these things, whoever Mm -hmm. you want to give credit or blame to. Um, We then come up with different ways of interpreting it. And um, Mm -hmm. so depression, for instance, is a phrase that was used beginning in the mid to late 19th century. Mm -hmm. Uh, Melancholia has a deeper tradition. the, The Latin phrase relates to the concept of black bile. And the belief was that there were four humors. And if you had too much black bile, you had this Mm-hmm. Sadness, extreme uh, depressive symptoms that we know about, mm-hmm. uh, exactly the same as we describe it now. They just had a different explanation for it
0: back then. Absolutely. Well, a related objection to this intersection of uh, mental illness and historical crisis leadership analysis is that for many of these dead leaders, you don't have modern medical tests, you don't have the same level of record keeping that one might have now. Um, how can you diagnose a patient who is long dead?
1: You know, um, as I got into this, this work, it, it became interesting to me that the more dead they were, the better I could diagnose them. <laughs> uh, in other words, the longer away you were from the patient, actually, the more accurate uh, documentation you could find to make diagnoses. Uh, in fact, I, I've come up with a 50-year rule. I think 50 years is how long people need to be dead before we mm-hmm. can make accurate diagnoses of them. And that's because oftentimes with political and public leaders, their personal letters, their diaries, mm-hmm. and even their medical records mm-hmm. are um, kept secret, usually for about 50 years in the interest of confidentiality, often of other people who are alive at the time. And then depending on the family um, or the setting, they often are then made public. That happened with John Kennedy, for instance. So John Kennedy's medical records were made public, uh, I think, in the 1990s, 30, 40 years after he died. Mm -hmm. And it clearly states in his medical records that he was diagnosed with Addison's disease and had severe depression. And Mm -hmm. it even says things like uh, uh, you find in, in his doctor's notes that he was treated with an antipsychotic. Well, if people say you can't know because they're dead, actually, the truth is the more dead they are, the more you know. It's the living people who hide their records. Uh, We don't know the truth about Bill Clinton and Donald Trump, but we do know the truth about John Kennedy and Winston Churchill and Abraham Lincoln.
0: That's a good point. And it makes me think there's almost a sweet spot in history. So it's not necessarily the longer ago they died, the better the result because there's diminishing returns after a certain point because of the mists of history, the lack of record keeping fires that have burned down libraries and archives and houses that held letters. But maybe that sweet spot is the 18th and 19th centuries where we have enough records on enough prominent people that you can do some of the research you did. Whereas I think it would be hard to find, you know, the Roman emperor Aurelian uh, to have any robust sources that help us.
1: Yes, especially the 19th century, which was such a period of, of extensive letter writing. Mm-hmm. I think future historians will have trouble with current public figures because people don't write letters anymore. Yeah. Um, I mean, we do have the email trail. Um, there'll be that kind of thing to look up. Right. But in the 19th century, you know, we can rely, for instance, on General William Sherman writing a letter to his daughter describing that he wanted to die to yeah. say that he was suicidal. <laughs> and mm-hmm. that's the kind of documentation we have
0: absolutely and now yes you're right we have emails we have in theory texts um um, but obviously a lot of texting apps now deliberately do not keep the messages and future historians and medical researchers will be scratching their heads um one other objection if you will that relates to this um you described what seems counterintuitive, that it might be easier to do some of this work with someone who's 50 years dead than someone who's alive or recently passed. Um, and that that shocks some people's expectations because a popular conception, perhaps a misconception, about psychiatry is it's all about laying on the couch and talking about your feelings. And if you can't do that with a patient, you can't really understand the patient. Um, And I think that bleeds into the the objection that comes from the association of modern psychiatry with the legacy of psychohistory, particularly Freudian psychoanalysis, um, which obviously has some issues looking back. Um, How can you assess psychiatric conditions without falling prey to the the worst excesses of Freudian psychoanalysis and its interpretations?
1: Yeah, um, well, I think that's a very good and, and informed question. Um, there are two ways of doing psychohistory, in my view. There's a traditional way, which is Freudian, like you said, and that's most associated with people like Eric Erickson, who, in the 1960s, you know, um, he I believe he got a number of book awards uh, and certainly um, best-selling results from his work in psychohistory. A book he wrote on on Martin Luther, uh, another one that he wrote on Gandhi. Um, and that was the way it was done from the 1940s, 50s, 60s, really, until the 1990s, 2000s, and still is done that way by, by many psychoanalysts who are psychiatrists. Mm-hmm. I'm not a psychoanalyst, and I practice the second kind of psychohistory, which I, I may have invented for all I know. I call it Kreplinian psychohistory, uh, and, mm-hmm. and most people won't know who Kreplin is. But in psychiatry, that's, that's the issue. There are two, more, there's more than one way of doing psychiatry, mm-hmm. and there are non-Freudian ways.
0: Tell us a bit about, about Kreplin so that yeah. we have a foundation for that and, and we're all a bit smarter.
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, so he was a German psychiatrist, contemporary of Freud, a, a little younger, yeah, around 1900 was when he most, was most active. And uh, in contrast to Freud's views, which are well known about psychological causes of mental illness, his view was that mental illnesses were uh, the severe ones like schizophrenia and manic depression were biologically caused. In fact he's the person that defined the phrase manic depressive illness the way we use it now and described the, the concept as well as schizophrenia very influential in psychiatry much much more so than freud uh, for most of the first half of the 20th century unfortunately since germany was the leading um, light of psychiatry before world war ii it suffered of course with its association with nazism and, and most of the leading german academics became not, had to be nazi party members are uh, uh, loyal to the Nazis. And after World War II, Kreplin's ideas declined, mainly because of that political and social change. Uh, And they somewhat got resuscitated in the late 20th century in in psychiatry. And and some of us use those views. So the approach that he takes is not at all about sitting on a couch and talking about your feelings. It is no different than going into your primary care doctor's office. And getting a physical examination about some signs and symptoms and then making a diagnosis the difference is the examination is not physical but psychological Mm -hmm. Um, and basically um, the way you make these diagnoses has to do with not just the symptoms that a person for instance has depressive sadness or that they're manic and hyper energetic Mm -hmm. but also uh, a couple other variables that are independent of their symptoms you don't even need to, to be with the patient to know these things one of which is genetics, for instance, that they have family members who also have the condition um, or family members who committed suicide. You can di- diagnose that by going to, to the local government office. Mm-hmm. You don't need to be with a patient for that. Um, another va- variable that validates, we call it validating the diagnosis, is the course of the illness, meaning what age did it start, how long does yep. it last, does it get better or not? Again, these are things you can know by hospital records or by some external information. So mm-hmm. those other sources are just as important as the symptoms that the patient says he or she has. And that's how we make those diagnoses in this Kreplinian, more scientific way, as opposed to the more more theoretical and speculative Freudian way. And, and that's how I avoid that. What I would agree is a, a problem with the psychohistory that's very speculative mm-hmm. in a Freudian sense.
0: Let me follow up on a couple of points there to make sure I understand right. So you're looking at obviously symptoms and that's, that's huge. Um, But you mentioned you're also looking at other factors like genetics. Mm -hmm. Um, Now we actually have some pretty robust genetics in ways that were unimaginable 100 years ago. But but you can look at family histories even of long dead people to say, Mm -hmm. did they have family members who were documented of having the same symptoms and had similar courses of illness or treatments that were effective or not? Um, The course of the illness... Is it fair to say that if someone has a severe depressive episode, um, but it does not recur Mm -hmm. that, 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 that is indicative of something other than what you would diagnose as manic depression?
1: Absolutely. So for Mm -hmm. instance, if, if Winston Churchill had never had depression in his life Mm -hmm. and suddenly at age Fifty-five, sixty, when World War Two was about to start, he became depressed. Uh, that would not be evidence that he has manic depressive illness, but the mm-hmm. fact that he had it when he was thirty, uh, long before, and he was doing fine in his political career, and he had it, you know, multiple times between then and the and the war, and he had it ten years, twenty years after the war as well. All that indicates this recurrent course of the illness, which is classic for manic depression.
0: And and am I right that you know within a a reasonable range that the the typical course of manic depressive illness that there there is that onset in the 20s or 30s is yeah. common and if someone were to develop what otherwise looked like manic depressive illness but its onset were in let's say the 60s mm-hmm. that y- you would you would be looking at some other things because that right. is not typically what we would call manic depression
1: that would not be manic depression now there are other causes of depression mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. sometimes people have like mini strokes that cause depression sure. so you'll have more at that age but uh, what we're calling manic depressive illness and the, because of the way that illness is defined as beginning in your late teens early 20s maybe in your 30s at the less at the latest mm-hmm. if it doesn't start then then it's not manic depression and that shows you how important the course is you, you don't right. even need to be with a patient in a way to know that that could be documented other ways.
0: fascinating Um, And and the other one that you uh, mentioned and I recall is you actually can look historically at the treatment, Um, not that someone in 1800 was diagnosed with what we now (laughs) label manic depressive illness, Mm -hmm. but what were they treated with and was it effective or not? And if that, if a treatment actually worked, you can almost backward look at it and say, oh, that probably was manic depressive illness because it did respond to this intervention, whereas (laughs) it's probably more the opposite, right? There are so many interventions that were attempted that did not help or in fact made it worse, as we'll talk about, and that can also be indicative.
1: Yeah, the mere fact of treatment is relevant. So you Mm -hmm. have, uh, that's really the fourth uh, validator, we call it. So there's four of them, symptoms, family history or genetics is the second, course of illness is the third, and the fourth one is treatment, um, and, and, and this is a more nonspecific, but it's relevant. So basically, the idea is, especially when you go pretty far back, 100 years, 200 years or more, obviously, the treatments then were not very effective. They, they didn't really even know. We still don't know much about many of these conditions in terms of making people better. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, it's a little less relevant to say they got better or they didn't get better. But it is relevant to say, at the very least, that. and this gets at the, at the cultural critique, that within that culture's perspective of what was considered bad enough to have a psychiatric problem that leads you to go to a physician to get help, this yeah. person was bad enough that they actually took him to a physician. And that applies, for instance, to Lincoln in the mid 20th
0: century. Well, that's a good point because we can't expect that in any culture, uh, you know, going back before recent decades. You're not going to be looking for doctors who were prescribing lithium <laughs> because right. it wasn't a, it wasn't known, it wasn't yeah, a thing. Yeah. So you have to be looking for just the fact of seeking treatment and receiving right. it. Right? Okay. Well, this is all, in a sense background for for the main the main point, which is your your thesis, which I understand uh, was quite controversial when you posed it, but it's it's fascinating and you bring the receipts to back it up. and we'll talk about some of those receipts in the cases of crisis leadership historically, but you make the point that the best crisis leaders are either mentally ill or mentally abnormal, whereas the worst crisis leaders are mentally healthy. Uh, Tell us how mental illness, specifically manic depressive illness, Mm -hmm. is beneficial for crisis leadership in a nutshell.
1: So, Manic depressive illness means having either depressive symptoms and being slowed down or having manic symptoms, which is the opposite, being sped up and, and more active, energetic. And uh, when the symptoms are severe, they can you know, land you in the hospital and be a problem. But when they're mild, and they often are mild, uh, it is often less noticeable and people are quite functional. They're walking around. It it turns out that there are actually four aspects of these um, mood states that actually are helpful for leadership, uh, especially in times of crisis. And this has been played out in in various research studies. And the four aspects are for depression that people have more realism and they have more empathy Mm -hmm. and for mania or manic symptoms, they are more creative and they are more resilient to stress. And when you put those four things together you got an excellent crisis leader. And if you're a mentally healthy person and you have don't have a lot of empathy and you're not a little you're a little unrealistic mm-hmm. uh, and you're not very creative and you're not too resilient to stress you're not going to be a very good crisis leader.
0: Hmm. And let's play the opposite of that. During non-crisis times when you're looking for a right. A steward, an administrator, a a manager of normal processes and range of activities, someone who has, in a sense, does not have the upside of high creativity, um, extensive realism, and empathy, or you know, that isn't necessarily a hindrance in those times because you're looking for somebody to just keep their hand on the till. Um, But, but your point is that during a time of, of crisis, it's more useful to have those traits. Is right. the obverse true that during normal times, having a leader who is perhaps overly creative and resilient, or yep. uh, depending on the the swing, perhaps too realistic and empathetic, um, to the point of almost inaction that that is bad for a standard administrator or manager.
1: That's right. And, and in fact, the uh, the best crisis leaders we have tended to be very, um, unsuccessful in their lives uh, before the crises, like in in times of peace as opposed to war. Churchill Mm -hmm. was a a losing politician before World War II. Sherman couldn't even uh, make enough income to live on his own, had to live with his father-in-law before the Mm -hmm. Civil War. So yeah, yeah, the the best feature of mental health is sociability, Mm -hmm. that one gets along well with others. Mm -hmm. The negative way of putting that is conformism. Uh, And it's positive when you're social and it's negative when you're conformist. But Mm -hmm. conforming when things are good is not a negative thing. Mm -hmm. It doesn't become negative until people realize that things need to change. And that doesn't usually happen until crises. So, um, you know, I think I think we need to appreciate the positives and the negatives of both mental health and mental illnesses, especially manic depression. And instead, we've tended to assume that mental health is completely positive and mental health and mental illness is completely negative.
0: I do want to dig into a few of these cases. We've already mentioned names like uh, Churchill, Sherman, (laughs) Lincoln. Um, And so we'll dig into some of those. But before we do so, I do want to, in a sense, try to place a boundary here because you've you've talked about manic depressive illness, but we're also talking about personality traits Mm -hmm. that can be somewhere in the bell curve of normality, however that would be defined, but, but they get to an extreme and perhaps you do get some of the benefits of excessive creativity and resilience that can come with um, what you would call more of a manic personality, but not someone diagnosed as a manic depressive. Yes. Um, Do you see that there, there has to be a threshold crossed for good crisis leadership, or can somebody who is simply on that side of the bell curve be be useful if they have slightly greater realism and empathy, or slightly greater yes. creativity and resilience.
1: Yes, uh, I'm so glad you asked that question because this is a key point that that's not appreciated usually because contemporary psychiatry doesn't actually look at these uh, mild personality traits. Yeah. Um, so. You don't have to have a lot of these traits to have the benefits. Everything gets magnified in the crucible of leadership, especially political and military leadership, especially times of war or political crisis. So if you're a little bit unrealistic, that could be the difference between going to war and saying there are weapons of mass destruction and there aren't. You don't have to be extremely unrealistic. Just a little bit's enough. Um, So uh, the... That the, the manic symptoms can be part of your personality, and depressive symptoms can be part of your personality, so that you're all the time a little up, a little energetic, a little hyperactive, workaholic, uh, usually funny. Some, it comes across as charismatic because you're highly sociable when you're a little high-energy manic as part of your personality. And mm-hmm. the opposite for the depression. You're more introverted as opposed to extroverted. You're slowed down, you, but you can be very thoughtful, and, and you can be very insightful as well. Uh, on the depressive personality, it turns out that people who have managed depressive illness in between their severe mood episodes are in these mild personality traits all the time. About fifty yeah. percent of the time, they are, mm-hmm. and they have relatives who are like that a lot. And, and oftentimes, they won't have the relatives won't have full blown mood episodes. They'll just have the mild symptoms as their trait and so they don't really get diagnosed it's not really a problem they're just hyper and very productive all the time Uh, for instance if they're a little manic they can be very well rewarded for that in fact i think it's true that not only political military leaders but all kinds of successful people businessmen entrepreneurs academics writers artists musicians etc there's a very high prevalence of this manic personality of mild manic traits all the time which is what drives them and makes them so productive and creative and and Mm -hmm. um and uh also though besides that being beneficial with the traits we mentioned someone can have the full-blown illness as well and still have the benefits that we mentioned so it works both ways and that's why i say Mm -hmm. Not just mental illness, but also mental abnormality. And by that, I mean these personality traits that you just mentioned.
0: And to what extent, uh, again, in a general sense, before we dig into uh, case studies, to what extent does treatment reduce those benefits, right? Because if you are suffering from manic depressive illness at a severe stage, um, for your own sake and those of others, you, you want treatment. But does a very effective treatment, in a sense, bring that back to a normal place where it is, in effect, uh, less useful for crisis leadership?
1: That's a good question. Um, We don't really know the answer to that because people Mm -hmm. haven't been thinking about it this way. Yeah. Um, I will say that about 10 years ago or so, when I published First Rate Madness, and I was, and and I still am clinically active, uh, and at the Mm -hmm. time I was seeing plenty of patients, uh some people started coming to me often entrepreneurs in high tech uh, after having read the book and said you know i never went to a psychiatrist before because i didn't want to get treated because i mm-hmm. i had a sense that these this they didn't call it mania but the mood yeah. symptoms they had they were having were beneficial to them in some way hmm. but they were also problematic in some way for instance you know often you have insomnia or you can't yeah. focus well you can't get distracted you get misdiagnosed with adult ADD, um, you have anxiety and you get diagnosed as having anxiety disorder. Those are all side effects in a way of the manic personality. Uh, we call it hyperthymia, the term for manic personality. And um, it's not in the official DSM system of psychiatry. So these people don't get diagnosed with it. And I'm, I'm one of the few people that talks about it. So some of these folks came to me and were willing to get treatment at that point. And what's was interesting to me that it was exactly because once we I put out there that it's beneficial to have these traits. That's when people are willing to get help, and yeah. it's not to get rid of the benefits. It's to right. appreciate the benefits enough that when you try to help a little bit by maybe just rounding the edges of the traits a little bit, um, right. you 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 keep most of the benefits and you get rid of some of the the drawbacks.
0: That's that's interesting because people who have not had mental illness themselves or had it uh with someone in close to them in their family or friend network i think there is this impression of all or nothing that if there is mental illness people will conflate something like a, a, a sociopath with a manic depressive person and see, seeing it all as mentally ill needs to be fixed and your approach seems slightly different uh which i i think makes sense which is No, there are some uh, conditions, some personality tendencies, perhaps, but even in the case of a diagnosed illness, where you're not trying to reverse the person you're, you're trying to treat the illness. um, But you're but you're not trying to change everything about the person and and Mm -hmm. what makes them who they are.
1: Yeah, and you you aren't trying and you can't actually, I always tell people that Good news is our drugs don't work very well, so they're not going to actually going to change you that much. Uh, they, they may yeah. work for the severe symptoms, actually, mm-hmm. but they don't work well for the mild uh, personality trait symptoms that, this, right. they do help, but they't do not in the sense of right. personality is not something you take away it's mm-hmm. always going to be there. so yeah. all you can do is round the edges is the phrase I use is to, right. to to smooth things off a little, but you're a person who's manic all the time hyper, has hyperthymia. Will mm-hmm. always be that way. They might be sure. just a little less, uh, but well, you don't you don't change them as a person at all with these. Understood. Questions.
0: Let's let's dig into a couple of cases here um, and bring out some traits and characteristics that I think many of our listeners know about one or more of these individuals, but certainly not of all of them. I, I learned a lot by looking at the the medical history that you gathered on some of these people. Um, let's start with with Churchill and maybe we'll start with more of the, what we would call the depressive side uh, benefits of manic depressive leadership, uh, the realism and empathy part. You cite Churchill as somebody whose uh, realism connected to his manic depressive illness um, was probably crucial for his leadership during the second world war, uh, but also in, in, in less detail, Some of his uh, failures in leadership up to that point during less crisis-oriented times uh, may have been very much related as well. So describe Churchill in terms of those symptoms, genetics, course of illness, the kinds of things that help you understand why it is fair to say what Churchill was suffering from and then how it applied to his leadership.
1: Right. Well, uh, uh, he's uh, perhaps the best example. Um, The... His father had, uh, so the genetics are, we'll start with everything except the symptoms, just to kind of emphasize how this is, these other validators are so important. His father uh, had severe delusions and psychosis, uh, and towards the end of his life was completely incapacitated by them. He also had fooled around with um, a well-known uh, prostitute of the late Victorian era. Uh, he probably got syphilis, and most people attribute his his psychiatric illness to syphilis. But it's hard to mm-hmm. say, because if you have manic depression, one of the features is hypersexuality. And so you're more prone to getting sexually transmitted infections. Mm-hmm. Um, separate from his father, Churchill's first cousin, to whom he was very close, whose nickname was Sunny, um, ironically, had very severe depression and was psychiatrically hospitalized repeatedly. His own daughter had severe depression and committed suicide. So there's tons of manic depressive illness in Churchill's family. Sure. Um, in terms of treatment, Churchill was diagnosed with uh, cyclothymia, which is the version of the mild mood symptoms where your mood goes up and down to, between mania and depression. That's the third version we didn't mention. You could always be up. You could always be down, or you could be up and down, which is very common. Right. He was actually diagnosed with that by a neurologist aptly named Lord Russell Brain. Hmm. Uh, Lord Brain was a very famous neurologist in the mid 20th century who consulted on Churchill and made that diagnosis. It's documented. so. In the case of Churchill, and I've gotten some f- pushback from British readers, some British uh, individuals, intellectuals, who it's not me making the diagnosis. He actually was diagnosed by his own doctors <laughs> with uh, both depression and cyclothymia, which is what manic depressive illness is. It involves mm-hmm. those kinds of symptoms. Mm-hmm. Uh, his personal physician uh, who published his, his uh, diary, Lord Moran, 10 years after Churchill died, it gets to that that delay after someone dies and and documents come out. uh, Lord Moran, 10 years after Churchill's death uh, around 1970, documented that he had diagnosed Churchill with depression and had treated him with amphetamines, which were the first treatments for depression that actually worked in the 1930s. It's interesting because both Churchill and Hitler were treated for depression during World War II. Um, And uh, so those are the, the treatment and genetics validators. And in terms of course of illness, Churchill had a severe depression when he was around 30 years old when he was a member of parliament mm-hmm. and couldn't attend uh, many sessions. He later described, uh, for instance, a habit of staying away from windows because he was afraid he would impulsively throw himself out mm-hmm. and staying away from the edge of the railway tracks because he was afraid he would jump in front of a train. Mm-hmm. Um, that was around age 30. That would be like in the
0: 1920s. And to be clear from, from, uh, yeah. from what I've read and, um, what you've just described, it was not a, a phobia or a fear of being hit by a train. It was no. very explicitly, I can't stop thinking about jumping in front of the train purposely when I'm that close. Right.
1: It wasn't that he couldn't stop thinking about it from what I understand. It was more that, uh, he had thought about it and he mm-hmm. was afraid that he would impulsively do it.
0: Right. Okay. Um,
1: okay. and it was the same with windows. It wasn't just uh, the trains. Yeah. Um, and um in the 1930s he was severely depressed didn't wasn't very functional uh, interestingly throughout the war he was not depressed at all and was 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 very functional after the war in the 1950s he was very severely depressed again he did have a stroke lit later which might have contributed to his depression but when he died he was severely depressed and thought he had been a, been a total failure all his life um he also drank alcohol a good deal. A lot of people attribute the the depression, the alcoholism. Of course, it can go the other way around, and often does. People are self medicating. Uh, Churchill himself thought that was the case when he he famously said he had so many great aphorisms. One of one one of which was, uh, "I have taken more out of drink than it has taken out of me." Um, <laughs> which is getting at the the self-medication benefits in a way. But
0: tell me me about that self-medication because obviously alcohol abuse or drug use uh, as well um, have many, many causes and many things that are not related to manic depressive illness. And yet there is a, is it fair to say, a tendency, um, especially in people not receiving other treatment to self-medicate. Winston Churchill had the benefit of traveling to the United States during prohibition and having a doctor basically right. give him tons of alcohol to drink, uh, yeah. along the way. Um, what is that link between self-medicating with, uh, extreme, uh, alcohol consumption or even drug consumption and the conditions we're talking about?
1: It's a complicated, uh, interaction and, and I don't think it's one that is fully understood still, but, but we do know that, when people have mania, they tend to be more impulsive in general. And that impulsivity often f- plays out in sexual ways and financial ways, but also with, with drugs and alcohol. They just use it more. When they're depressed, they tend to more self-medicate in the traditional way that they they may feel less anxious. Alcohol does have an anti-anxiety effect. Right. Or uh, or at least short term, they numb their feelings um, but, lo- but as we know, alcohol actually worsens depression in the big picture. So yeah. it, it's, it's an effect of the mood states, but then it, it worsens the mood too. Uh, alcohol worsens the depression. Depending on what drug you use, if you use cocaine, that certainly worsens mania. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you get into this vicious cycle that often is the case with people who have both substance abuse and um, bipolar illness, for instance.
0: Yeah. So many of the things you just described about Churchill are eerily parallel for Abraham Lincoln. Now, Abraham Lincoln, we don't have the same same density of family history because we just know less about Mm -hmm. his his family, but there seem to be some cases. Mm -hmm. But certainly the description of the depression, um, Mm -hmm. I remember when I was writing about why presidents leave office and how they leave and was talking about disability uh, as a provision for removing a president. I did casually explore the issue of depression across American presidents. And one study uh, found about, based on much less in-depth research than yours, found at least a quarter of presidents suffered from what now would be called some form of depression or another. And Abraham Lincoln being one of the best documented cases, because again, he wrote so much about it and his friends and colleagues did. And one thing that struck me was the account Um, that he wrote at one point, I believe in 1841, during that episode, when he wrote, I am now the most miserable man living. He wrote, if what I feel were equally distributed to the whole human family, there would not be one cheerful face on the earth. To remain as I am is impossible. I must die or be better. Um, That's pretty blunt, right? Even without the family history, even without the genetics component, um, there's some good, strong evidence of of symptoms. And then, of course, correlating that with his life, the the course of the illness. But there's one thing that stands out to me as quite different, which is Abraham Lincoln uh, did not get into drinking in the, the way Winston Churchill did. Mm-hmm. So obviously, there can be different presentations here. Um, mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about Lincoln and how he also reflects a lot of the same realism that, that Churchill had as a benefit during times of crisis. Um, but how his illness played out over the course of his life
1: right. And um, I think it's important to point, point out with with, uh, with both of them that uh, before the wars that they were engaged in, they were depressed, heavily depressed. Yes. and yeah. and you can interpret that in terms of the realism and they were both very realistic too. they, they knew that they were heading, in their settings, into a major conflict, whereas many others were in denial about it uh, in in their cultures. You know, in, in England, people were in extreme denial in the 1930s about the Nazis rearming, and, and Churchill kept uh, complaining about it. And it w- even in his own party, they didn't agree with him. In the U.S. in the 1850s, uh, Lincoln was pretty clear that that it was um, likely that they would head to war unless there was some. Some v- variety of abolition that everybody could compromise on which which wasn 't really feasible, um, but they were both very realistic before the wars, and they were realistic during their wars. If you look at how they engaged in their leadership during the the wars, you know Lincoln was changing generals a lot, but he was he was pretty clear on on some strategy that was uh, in retrospect um, very advanced, both in terms of military and political calculations, such as waiting on emancipation until the middle of the war and after a, a victory at Gettysburg. And Churchill was um, extremely involved in a lot of the military planning during World War II. And um, Roosevelt used to say that Churchill has a thousand ideas a day, four of which were good. Uh, and he was constantly uh, very productively active and creative in, in what he did. So they were, you, know, you see the creativity, you see the realism, uh you see the resilience to stress that's probably the most well-known feature for both of them in terms of yeah. leading their countries during these horrendous wars mm-hmm. and the empathy you know lincoln for the slaves churchill yeah. for the jews um mm-hmm. now churchill had limits to his empathy he didn't oh, yeah. extend it to india and mm-hmm. iran and the middle east right. or a lot of the empire but he did have a lot of empathy obviously in europe towards towards the jewish population and mm-hmm. towards in general against racism um so that was not that was not common, actually, in his circles. The people tended to be very anti-Semitic in upper-crust conservative England. Uh, so th- these are features of their personality that, that I think play out of their moods.
0: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
1: Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right?
0: Plush care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey they can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify plus they accept most insurance plans to get started visit plushcare.com weight loss that's plushcare.com weight loss it's it's interesting that it, it it challenges our common notions of someone who, suffers from any kind of illness, but certainly mental illness and manic depressive illness in particular, that if they succeed, it is despite this great hurdle that somehow through family, friends, treatment, uh, something within their personality, that somehow they overcome this hurdle and get past it. But even without your research, I recognize something about Lincoln, because when I when I looked at this history of Lincoln's depression, um, I ended up writing the president's tragedies may have spurred some of his greatest attributes, may have actually spurred them, not, not just that he overcame them, but the, yeah. that the tragedies may have spurred some of his attributes. Uh, Lincoln silently suffered, yes, but that torment powered his legendary persistence and compassion. And it seems that in the Churchill and Lincoln cases, you really do get that, that resilience, that, that, that realism, as well as some empathy, um, seems to be very much related to this, to this illness in a way that people who have admired these leaders may not want to acknowledge. Because they, they prefer the narrative of someone who overcomes rather than someone who is spurred by things that they don't see as normal or positive.
1: Right. We want superheroes instead of heroes. Uh, and then we want these superheroes to be supernatural so that we can have them as different from us maybe so that we can feel maybe more satisfied with the fact that we're not perhaps um, at that level. Uh, in, in fact, it's, it should be um, something that, that makes us feel better to see view it as natural because um, it is something that everybody is capable of in a way um it's not in spite of their mental illness it's because of their mental illness and and i think that's a key distinction
0: well you you already brought up the link between realism and empathy um with churchill and and with lincoln um but there's someone else who i think is a fascinating case here that you've examined which is gandhi in Mm -hmm. india and he relates to several of these but empathy of course He's renowned for his moral perimeter, especially for the time in which he lived. His moral perimeter being wide enough to include, you know, not just his tribe, not just his race, not just his country, but all all of humanity. Um, Talk a little bit about Gandhi's mental illness and how that related to his leadership.
1: Yeah, and, and speaking of Gandhi, you can just conclude Martin Luther King in the same discussion. And in fact, that's been a, a decade long book project of mine that, that mm-hmm. I'm still trying to get published. It's been difficult. But um, in the case of, of Gandhi and King, I believe that what they practiced was a politics of radical empathy. I, I think the whole nonviolence concept is a politics of radical empathy. And by radical empathy, I mean. A, the empathy that is extended, not just to one's friends or, or those who were maybe somewhat similar to oneself, but to one's opponents. And those who were very different than oneself. And that's what Gandhi did as a Hindu towards Muslims. Uh, and that's yep. what King did as an mm-hmm. African-American towards white segregationists. It's mm-hmm. very difficult to do. And actually, I think maybe you have to have very severe depression to be this radically empath- empathic combined mm-hmm. with other features in both cases, Uh, A very steep um, link to religious and spiritual traditions, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. interpreted in a very empathic kind of way. Obviously, there are plenty of Christians who are violent, and plenty of Hindus who are violent too. (laughs) So it's not just that they were Hindu or Christian, but they there there are those those roots there that that had an impact. And um, in fact, I think in Islam there are roots. uh, Speaking as a Muslim, uh, similarly that are not sufficiently explored. People assume that this religion doesn't have that kind of nonviolent uh, heritage, but it does. But it's more about the person. Uh, to be radically empathic is extremely difficult and goes far against human nature uh, It, in the sense that the more mentally healthy you are, the harder it is to be radically empathic with your opponent.
0: That is fascinating. Having explored um, social psychology issues, the the immense power of in-group dynamics and the, the cascading effects of how you define your in-group and out-group, um, you're right. It's It seems like the normal thing to do as a human, whether we like it or not, the normal thing is to define yourself in terms of the other and to use, use threats, whether in a political sense or a personal sense, to create your sense of identity or enhance your sense of identity. Um, I explored that only on the political science side intersecting with psychology, but it seems here it it's similar too it's it's hard for people to break out and be radically empathetic because it goes against so much of how we perceive our social role within whatever milieu we're in mm-hmm.
1: yeah, people talk about tribalism and polarization uh, that's all a reflection of this absence of empathy or this very limited empathy that we have
0: yeah. Well, you, you mentioned um, Martin Luther King also, and I do want to ask about this, this book project a bit. So Mm -hmm. you've, you've, you've written, you've researched and written about Martin Luther King already. Uh, Is this a deeper exploration of the same issues or are you taking a slightly different tack in, in exploring that?
1: It's a it's a deeper exploration. Uh, you know, and the interesting one of the interesting things about First Rate Madness was that the chapters on the more recent leaders uh, always got resistance from whatever ethnic group or country the leader was from. Yeah. So the British didn't like the Churchill chapter, mm-hmm. and the Germans didn't like the Hitler chapter, and the Indians didn't like the Gandhi chapter, and in the U.S. the the, the criticism was to the King chapter by some people um and and in some extent to some extent it was justified partly because as i said the 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 more recent the leader the less the evidence and in the case of king uh we had less documentary evidence than we had with other people about his depressions he he had made two suicide attempts when he was a 12 year old where he jumped out of a window uh he had been hospitalized repeatedly but for exhaustion but they didn't call it depression but it certainly seemed like depression uh, certainly the last year of his life, he had very severe depression. Um, so I thought that a follow-up would be to, um, because it was he was in that 50-year window, he was in the sweet spot, yeah. I thought that there was documentation that was there that I could identify in the King archives. He had okay. some medical records that no one had looked at before. Mm-hmm. And, and some of his old colleagues were still alive that I could interview in, in oral history to add. So that's what I did as a follow-up project, and um, I I have documented that he was uh, pretty severely depressed repeatedly. He even has a bipolar illness in his family. I documented, Um, and um, his medical records indicate some evidence, at least, of sexual impulsivity, which is at this point well documented, which which I think relates to his personality state, which was which was cyclothymic, always a little up and down in his mood, or actually mostly hyperthymic, mostly manic in his mood. Incredible amount of energy. He only slept four hours a night. Most nights, he was constantly traveling like 200, 300 days out of the year and was never exhausted from it, hardly exhausted. Uh, he was an incredibly energetic person. It doesn't come across when you see him talk, but when you interview people who knew him, uh, it comes through. The other reason I, I, I did that project was I wanted to link this, this, this kind of nailing of the diagnosis of manic depressive illness for Dr. King to mm-hmm. the concept of the politics of radical empathy as the psychology of nonviolence. And that's what half of my book is about, okay. is about how the whole civil rights movement was about, involved appreciating this kind of psychology mm-hmm. of, of why, why one should be nonviolent. Uh, and it 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 uh, coincided in the last four or five years, of course, with a lot of civil strife in this country. You know the arguments around uh, the um, demonstrations against police brutality and so on, mm-hmm. so that publishers have been reluctant to wade in on a topic that uh, some people are going to want want us criticize in, in terms of saying that that Martin Luther King Jr. had any psychiatric condition for the same reasons we've just been talking about this this whole hour.
0: And that does build into the issue that I, I do want to address after a lot of these uh, cases of, of stigma and the issues of yes. stigma associated with this topic yes um, in a way that does more harm than good to continue to, to stigmatize in this way
1: yeah you know um, the there's a there's a I have in, in the hopefully upcoming King uh, book on dr. King uh, that's also just about the civil rights movement I have a chapter on other civil rights leaders uh, who had psychiatric illness, um, Mm -hmm. specifically manic depressive illness, one of whom, James Bevel, was actually very severely manic depressive and was hospitalized. He was one of Mm -hmm. King's top aides. There are some people that are relatively unknown outside of the world of civil rights historians. There was a young student leader from Mm -hmm. Alabama who had severe bipolar illness, was delusional at one point, got hospitalized and eventually committed suicide. And in the case of that, that young leader, uh, towards the end of his life, when his friends were trying to raise funds to, to help support him, uh, they sent around a circular that I found in an archive uh, where they commented, it's just, a, it's just a small comment, was that he represents the loneliest minority of all, meaning African-American and mentally ill. And, uh, and that's, that's, that's a
0: great, that's a great that, line. It might be a great book title.
1: That's the title the of the chapter, minority. the onlyest minority of all. Wow, families.
0: that's stunning.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, we've we've talked a bit already, Nasir, about the um, what I would call the, the the depressive side, if you will, the realism and empathy traits, but the hyperthermic traits of creativity and resilience, I think, are worth exploring here. Um, you really dug into the history of of General Sherman and mm-hmm. the fascinating, not only. General Sherman and the contrast between his, what I'll call regular times failures, and then his crisis, um, amazing creativity and success uh, with, with some downsides. Um, but also the contrast with McClellan, that you, you, you actually have a natural case study, in a sense, right. of, of people facing similar circumstances with very different personalities, and in the case of Sherman, different uh, uh, mental illness. So uh, briefly sketch out Sherman's symptoms and course of treatment. And, and then these things that lead, lead you to say definitively what he was suffering from and, and then how that did propel him forward.
1: Right. Well, Sherman was documented in, in, by you know, contemporary news reports, reporters who would talk to him and so on, where he would be highly talkative. He, he, he talked a lot, talked very fast. And he was always nervous and fidgety and restless. Uh, he was a very energetic man. He, he didn't sleep much and, um, and very active. Uh, and these are all manic symptoms, talking fast, moving fast, having high energy. And that's what the manic symptoms are that are mild and part of your personality, which, which in the psychiatry literature of the past has been called hyperthymia or hyperthymic temperament. Uh, so when he was um, in the march to Atlanta and, and Georgia and the South, uh, he when he was being interviewed, he was in in that usual state of his, um, and um, I think that that that's the kind of state that is that uh, may be related to creativity. You know what he did with um, the march on uh, through the South in 1864 was a highly unconventional military move that was. Um, widely criticized at the time and the only reason he was able to do it was because grant who himself had depression and alcoholism um gave him permission uh, and lincoln gave grant permission um but uh later military tacticians have looked at it and 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 appreciated its its audacity but basically Mm -hmm. he cut all his supplies and took his army into the south which no one ever did throughout the war no one ever cut their supplies Mm -hmm. and then the plan was not to face the opposing army, but just to destroy as much of the countryside as they could, partly to uh, reduce the supplies to the Southern army, but also to reduce their morale. And, and his focus on the psychology of war, on, on psychological morale, was also something that no one else had done. Uh, he has a phrase where he says something along the lines of, I wanted to follow them into the recesses of their hearts and make them fear and dread us. He's talking about the civilian population. So yeah. this was also the beginning of modern total war, where the war is no longer the traditional Grant versus Lee and the armies as gentlemen directly rushing at each other, but it's about getting the whole society uh, involved mm-hmm. in, in a positive and negative way. The negative, obviously, is, is, is civilians are innocent, which is what Sherman was so criticized for by the South. But the positive is it's true. It wasn't until you broke the back of civilian morale that the Southern army started um, weakening and his march through the South, his burning of the countryside, his burning of Atlanta, all the time, avoiding any direct conflict with the Confederate army, which was constantly following him and trying to engage him. uh, Ultimately that's what uh, led to Lincoln's reelection in 1864 that had a huge psychological impact in the North as well, in terms of support for the war, which had been decreasing. Mm -hmm. And if that had not happened, if Lincoln had not been reelected and McClellan was his was his opponent, if McClellan had been elected, he would have made peace with the South. That was his policy. Yeah. Uh, so it was really Sherman who won the Civil War and who turned the tide. And that was a lot of that was because of his manic uh, creativity. I want to say one more thing just briefly. There's a new book coming out called Bipolar General by Greg Martin, who's a Iraq war general, just came out. And he was one of the leading combat commanders in the, in the Iraq war about 15 years ago. And he later had a full blown manic episode and was, was removed from command, had to retire. Now he's on lithium and is doing great. And, as, and I've gotten to know him and his history, his personal history was exactly the same. Uh, I've called him the Sherman of modern times because he had the same hyperthymia all his life before the Iraq war, which was very successful. Got a PhD at MIT rose up the ranks of the military, uh, and was very successful during the war. But after the war, he, he had his crash. Um, so this this uh, story with Sherman, I think, is actually very common, uh, perhaps among military commanders in particular.
0: And it may help, as in this case, it may help, to have knowledge of this case may help other people who are resisting, seeking treatment, seeing it that it will be some kind of a, a mark against them to actually say, no, This this is something that my successes are partially due to this, but there are ways that I could manage things better.
1: Yeah, it's important because as General Martin's approach and right now is especially in military circles to try to address this stigma, this discrimination. Yeah. We know about PTSD, and I think that's mm-hmm. good progress, but we don't really understand the culture has not gotten its head around mania mm-hmm. uh, and manic depression. And uh, the, the issue, you know, there are all these benefits we've talked about, and I've never, I've never uh, tried to downplay the negatives. The negatives include that if you do have mood temperaments like mm-hmm. hyperthymia or, or cyclothymia, you are at increased risk for severe depression and mm-hmm. severe mania uh, at some point in the future. And that's exactly what happened to General Martin. Got it. And that's what happened to Sherman, too. Sherman had very severe depression after World War II, by the way, after the Civil War, I should say. A lot of people wanted him to run for president, and he he wisely never did. He's the guy who famously said, you know, if nominated, I will not accept. If elected, I will not serve. (laughs) He (laughs) was very clear. Um, Then that was partly because he probably knew that in a non-crisis setting, he wouldn't function well. He he was very severely depressed towards the end of his life. Uh, His son also had probably severe depression and was homeless, Mm -hmm. actually, most of his life. So he, he, he didn't have a very happy life in a personal sense.
0: No. I do want to um, talk about the contrast between John Kennedy and Adolf Hitler. I mean, there are many mm-hmm. contrasts between John Kennedy and Adolf Hitler, but in terms of the importance of treatments and how they matter. So I'm gonna put, mm-hmm. put a hold on JFK for now, even though he is a great case of what we're about to talk about, mm-hmm. which is the, the, the crisis need of resilience. Mm -hmm. Um, so let's focus on FDR instead, because I think he also characterizes resilience really well. A lot of people who have a casual understanding of FDR probably don't realize the extent of, of his, uh, mental illness challenges. So can you describe that a bit for people? Because that's something that has not been publicized as much as some of the others we've talked about.
1: FDR is, is I think a, there's work that could be done there, and maybe should have been done fifty years. The fifty years for FDR would have been the nineteen eighties when people were around who still knew him. Um, int- very fascinating, and and, and my hypothesis is, is is what I've what I've written in First Rate Madness, which is that he clearly had a major effect of polio, which he got when he was thirty nine years old. He was right. rather old for getting polio mm-hmm. in the uh, after World War One. During World War One, up to that point, in his early 30s, he had been a highly successful upper class uh, mm-hmm. person who was rising up the ranks politically, and was Secretary of the Navy uh, for Woodrow Wilson. Mm-hmm. And everybody expected that at some you know, he would potentially become president. Great. But then he got polio, and then everyone thought, "Oh well, his career is over." Mm-hmm. Uh, and he uh, he had been elected governor of New York. Um, before then, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he basically, or maybe he was governor when he got it. I can't remember. But he went into a five to 10-year period of of, of of being kind of reclusive. Uh, mm-hmm. And essentially, he was in Warm Springs, Georgia, trying to recover as well as he could from the polio. But he had to remove himself from public life. And people thought his public life was over. This is through most of the 1920s. Yeah. Um, and then the Great Depression hits, and then he runs for president. Uh, or maybe he ran for governor first and then ran for president. Mm-hmm. Um, and people were surprised that he came back into politics with his wheelchair after polio. No one had ever done anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that he actually succeeded to be elected. But then that he became the kind of president that he was, as he was famously called a traitor to his class. Mm-hmm. Talk about empathy. He, he And for people that were completely different than him. That's what he did in terms of what his, his policies were with the, the poor in the US. Mm-hmm. Eleanor Roosevelt was famously once asked if he would have become president if he had not gotten polio. And she said he would have become president, but a president of a different kind. <laughs> uh, and one of his close friends said that she thought he was um, spiritually transformed by, by his experience with polio and its recovery. So, my take on franklin roosevelt is not that he had severe depression as far as i know as far as we know and this could be based on insufficient information he has not had severe depressive episodes in his life Mm -hmm. he also never had severe manic ones but he was definitely a high energy manic temperament he was highly talkative didn't need to sleep much a very high sexual libido um and uh very charismatic great sense of humor you know he had these um fireside chats because he loved to talk. He had uh, press conferences every week or two where he would go on and on for hours and compare that to presidents in recent years. Um, so uh, a very ener- energetic uh, person with with hyperthymic temperament, I think, definitely. In the Roosevelt family, we know there is manic depressive illness more severely. Right. Um, when you have manic symptoms, you are more resilient to stress. And the stress for him for his personal life was that polio experience. And he came back from that in a, in a different way that made him actually a better person in a way. So we speak of post-traumatic stress, we should also speak of post-traumatic growth. And that's where the resilience comes in. And then that played out in his later life, of course, with his with resilience to stress with uh, the two biggest uh, crises of the 20th century that any president faced, the Great Depression and World War II. I don't think there's anyone that exceeds Franklin Roosevelt in his success in terms of crisis.
0: Mm -hmm. It's great to hear you talk in such detail about everyone from, you know, Sherman to Churchill, from Lincoln and Gandhi to FDR. So um, you're a renowned psychiatrist. You've done so much clinical work, but so much research uh, in that field. And then applying it to history, it's such a fascinating mix. Um, What was the influence of your father in in a sense opening you up to work across different disciplinary boundaries
1: yeah so i mean there's a personal history i guess to all this which is um my father is a neurologist and neurosurgeon from iran he was actually very politically active in the 1950s in the um oil nationalization movement that was led at that time by prime minister Mohammad Mossadegh, uh, who eventually was in the 1953 overthrown in a cia um, organized coup d'etat, which put the king at the time, the Shah of Iran, back in power and led to the arrest of uh, Mossadegh's supporters, like my father, uh, who went to jail and, and, and suffered uh, while in prison with torture. Um, and after a few years, my father left and came to the U.S. to, to do his residency, but to, to get away from Iran at the time. Of course, he got to the U.S. in the 1950s during the McCarthy era, which was not ideal, um, he ended up going back to Iran in the 1960s after the Kennedys uh, were in power. Uh, and he was part of a political movement that was kind of social democratic and was trying to reform the society a bit. Um, they ended up getting repressed again in the n- late 1960s. And then he left for good and immigrated to the U.S. with us when we were small children. Uh, so we were raised in a very politically aware household and a household which valued. Sure. Um, a knowledge of society, history, uh, very intellectual. Um, I always used to say our dinner table conversation and usually involved Freud and Marx in some combination. Um, so uh, I went to college in the 80s and I, I my major was history. And uh, I did go to medical school and into psychiatry, but I always had this more humanistic orientation. And yeah. after doing my specialty training, I got a master's degree in philosophy at Tufts. Uh, So I, I, that's all weaved together. And I think first rate madness is a putting together of all those different threads of of my personal background.
0: What was the area of philosophy in particular that interested you the most or, or was it the intersection with these other fields?
1: It was really, it was a philosophy of mind because Mm -hmm. directly relates of course to psychiatry. And I I had the benefit of being able to study with Daniel Dennett, who was Mm a world famous philosopher of mind. But I also, Also interested in philosophy of science uh, and, and this ties into questions around how you can know things, uh, which is for instance, how do you know someone has a mental illness who's been dead? Well, there are a lot of conceptual issues around that and that's where philosophy of science comes in. Um, And philosophy of psychiatry, which is its own field too, which is around, for instance, how do you know that a diagnosis is a mental illness, whether it's biologically real or not, as opposed to social construction theories that postmodernists have. These are the kinds of things that I've, I've studied, and, and it does play into some of the assumptions behind first-rate madness.
0: It's easy for me to say as someone not in any of these fields, but it would seem to me that um, without denigrating any of your colleagues, it would be hard to be a superior psychiatrist without having some philosophy of mind background and, and at least having that to pull from in your own thinking. Um, but there are probably so many areas uh, that would be useful and not everyone can do all of them. Only you can do all of them. (laughs) Um, The one case I do want to talk about before uh, we wrap up is, is the fact that treatments do matter. And you can have people who have, uh, in some cases, some similar or what appear to be similar mental makeup and personality and even mental illness. And then treatments can take them in a direction that helps take advantage of the best of these traits we've talked about or it can put them on overdrive and lead to uh, horror and suffering. And the former case you cite is is John Kennedy, and with all of his maladies and illnesses, the fact that he was able to succeed in things like the Cuban Missile Crisis in a way that would not have been predicted from the Bay of Pigs and from some of his episodes earlier in life. And the contrasting case, of course, is Adolf Hitler, who suffered from some mental um, certainly, some mental issues, but then his treatments took him in a in a horrific spiral. so contrast those two for us both in terms of their conditions and then how the treatments differed
1: yep um well, in the case of 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 hitler um he was treated with amphetamines for depression, as was common in the nineteen thirties and forties um and it helped him, um, initially, um, in the 1930s. Right. But towards the end of the thirties, when he was, had full power and he could, once you get into having a lot of power, you can often get doctors to do whatever you want. Um, the amphetamines were being given to him intravenously. Um, and that was the case from 1937 until he died. Uh, amphetamines can cause Parkinsonian side effects, which we all of course know that he had, they also can make you delusional and psychotic, especially at high doses intravenously. Uh, and especially if you have bipolar illness, which he did have, he had manic and depressive episodes before all that, going back to his late teen years that are documented. So he probably got more manic, more psychotic, somewhat delusional, I should say. And, um, and that related to some of his decision-making during World War II, um, both in relation to genocide, um, but also some of the the invasions that he made that in, in, his own generals realized were really irrational. And this was a man who was not irrational. We may disagree with him all we like, but before 1937, 38, he was a very um, logically successful politician. Mm-hmm. Um, that contrasts with uh, John Kennedy, uh, who. Had Addison's disease, which is a adrenal gland insufficiency, and that causes depression as well. He also had a mood illness in his family. His sister had severe depression. We know that his nephew uh, is, yep. uh, mm-hmm. Ted Kennedy's son, is open about having bipolar illness. Yeah. Um, the um, In the case of Kennedy, he was getting uh, amphetamine some in the 1950s, but steroids for his Addison's disease. And steroids, we know. Can cause um, mania, obviously, and make someone more aggressive, and increases sexual drive. All of which would played out in Kennedy's behavior in the late fifties, and even in in the White House, as we know, with with a lot of his sexual um, activities, and um, but also in the first year or two, his uh, his failures, the Bay of Pigs, the Berlin crisis. He was not a very um, on the mark leader at the time, uh, he was he was indecisive um, and ineffective. Uh, and in the civil rights movement, for instance, uh, uh, he was not willing to really put his neck out yet. A lot of his domestic decision making, uh, he 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 didn't go for anti-poverty programs. Um, and then in nineteen sixty-three, his uh, brother Bobby intervened along with the Navy physician at the White House. To force him basically to get rid of his personal physician Janet Travell, who was giving him uh, intramuscular injections of steroids at will, uh, and once they stopped doing the steroid injections, he became a much more effective leader and and much more um, much more functional, I should say. Mm-hmm. And that's when he supported the civil rights movement and yes. and in nineteen sixty three. Came out against the nuclear with the nuclear uh, disarmament proposal and some of the other things that he became more well known for. In other words, there was a big change in his mm-hmm. leadership and more successful when the medications were changed. Um, so you can harm another negative to having manic depressive illness is if you get the wrong kinds of medications, the leadership can go in the wrong direction because the person can become too severely manic or otherwise uh, sick, and we saw that with Hitler definitely and to some extent, with John Kennedy.
0: Absolutely. Well, I do want to bring up one um, controversy within the profession. Um, When I told a colleague of mine that I'd be speaking with a uh, psychiatrist about political leadership, uh, he immediately said, well, what about the Goldwater Rule? And most of our listeners will be familiar with it, but for, for those who aren't, it's the idea based on some people who spoke out against candidate Barry Goldwater in 1964, I believe, Um, that the so-called rule says that it's unethical for psychiatrists to offer professional opinions uh, unless they've conducted examinations and been granted proper authorization as a way of avoiding, in a sense, applying mental illness diagnoses to political candidates in the current day. Um, Talk through your understanding of the so-called Goldwater Rule and how how it applies to your profession as a matter of ethics.
1: There's been a lot of debate about this, and, and I've been involved with it myself in the last uh, five, six years, but in the presidency of the last president, especially. Yeah. Um, my, my view is that the Goldwater rule is, is wrong. The rule was, the, the, the idea was implemented in late 60s when Barry Goldwater ran for president, and there was a survey, and psychiatrists said that they thought he had schizophrenia, a lot of them, uh, and that he wasn't fit for office. And mm-hmm. and the the AP, he sued the magazine and one and the american psychiatric association got together to put out a little statement basically saying that people should not make these kinds of public diagnoses based on more or less their personal political whims Mm -hmm. but it's been expanded as if it's something more meaningful in the sense that you shouldn't um, diagnose public figures if if you um, don't see them yourself now firstly the 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 rule only applies to members of the American Psychiatric Association. So if you're a psychiatrist who's not a member of the APA, you're Mm -hmm. not covered by this. You can do whatever you want. And if you're a psychologist or some other profession, it doesn't apply to you either. So it's not like a generic thing. But um, my criticism of it is everything we just said. I mean, in fact, you can document psychiatric illness very well with uh, medical records and other sources without having seen a person 50 years after they're dead. I think... That kind of documentation disproves the Goldwater rule. Uh, Furthermore, we have people who work for the CIA and the federal government who are psychiatrists and are making psychiatric evaluations of foreign leaders, like Saddam Hussein. So (laughs) that breaks the Goldwater rule. There are plenty of ways in which the, the rule is broken. The rule is false. It's a overreaction to the fact that psychiatry was unscientific in the 1960s. And people were applying political views for psychiatric terms. I agree with not doing that, but that doesn't mean you could, you should have a general statement that you can never talk about anybody unless they're your personal patient. The problem, of course, with that too, is you can't talk about your personal patient because of confidentiality. So the rule really is a way, it's a gag order on psychiatry. It's a censorship uh, and it's a reflection of stigma in my view. Why can't we talk about psychiatric illnesses? It's terrible that the American Psychiatric Association is actually stigmatizing psychiatric illness this way.
0: Yeah. You've got, you've got, two problems there, actually. Um, you know, you, you name one, which we'll come back to. But one is if people in the APA are, in a sense, banned from doing this, then it leads political pundits to be making psychiatric assessments because you don't have true experts out there doing it. So that can do more harm than, than good. But the stigma is a real issue. And in politics in particular, uh, most students of American political history will know the case of Thomas Eagleton and his uh, the publicity of his treatment for for psychiatry, and he, you know, basically had to leave the ticket. Uh, even though he had a successful career as a senator uh, afterwards, there still is a, a stigma associated with with mental illness. Even though you've shown quite effectively that what we consider mental illness and lumped together with much more severe um, disorders and conditions actually does have positive benefits for some aspect of of professional life. Have you seen a change since you've been working in the profession? Uh, in terms of that stigma, do do prominent people come coming out like the general you mentioned, General Martin and others? Is that having an effect of, if you will, moving the needle on the uh, stigma associated with mental illness?
1: Yes. I mean, I definitely think we're moving in the right direction. Uh, I don't think that the psychiatric profession can take any credit for it. I, I think that the psychiatric establishment is part of the problem to be honest. Um, but the, well, there is a cultural change happening nonetheless, uh, which is a reflection I think of generational change, uh, for various cultural reasons, uh, which are, um, complicated. Um, the generation after me, I'm generation X, you know, I'm in my fifties, the millennial generation and the generation Z, the people in their twenties to forties now, uh, are more open-minded about psychiatric conditions. Uh, they still don't really understand mania or bipolar illness that well or manic depression, but they definitely are more open-minded about things like depression, anxiety, and, and so-called ADD. Maybe yeah. too much in a way. Mm. Sometimes they may be over, overdoing it. There's this concept of neurodivergence and all that, which I, I personally think is a little taking it too far. Mm. But it is good. It is, it's it's good to react to the excessive conformism of the past Mm -hmm. and which got Mm -hmm. reflected in this discrimination against mental illness. Um, and, uh, I, but I think it's really generational. And, and so people who are my generation and older are mostly still quite discriminatory and stigmatizing and people who are younger are better. Um, Mm -hmm. I do think that one thing that we haven't appreciated is, is, is that stigma and discrimination, people often criticize from an ethical perspective. Like it's Mm -hmm. not a Good thing to do that, hmm. but I I, it, I think what isn't appreciated often in the profession is the points that we've been making throughout this 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 interview, which is the the another reason not to discriminate or stigmatize against mental illness is because actually it's wrong, it's factually wrong that mental illnesses are harmful or bad. Actually, they're beneficial, mm-hmm. and in some ways. And that's often hard for professionals to accept. And and I think that actually most mental health professionals don't understand that.
0: Right. Well, Nasir, our tradition is to end the interview by reaching into our so-called chatterbox and pulling out a random question.
1: Okay.
0: And the question for you today, if you could give one piece of advice to your 20 year old self, Mm. what would it be?
1: Wow. One piece of advice. There's two, There's lots of advice I would give. It's <laughs> hard to pick out one. Um, probably it would be to loosen up. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, I was a very serious 20-year-old. I needed to have a little bit more fun.
0: And wisdom has taught you that uh, you didn't need to be so wound up.
1: Didn't need to be. Things would have worked out fine anyway.
0: Well, that may be good advice for all of us. Uh, Thank you so much for uh, researching and writing A First-Rate Madness about the links between leadership and and mental illness. And and thanks for this conversation. I've learned a lot, and I'm, I'm sure our listeners will as well.
1: Thank you. I've enjoyed it too.
0: That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter.